0: God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and your mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts Lord you have kept your promises to all of your people because you are the faithful God Lord all the way back from Israel's history as we've been reading the last two weeks in our responsive reading We saw your goodness toward your people. As we read this morning, you brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. And Israel saw it. You brought them through the Red Sea. And they witnessed that. You brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. You moved all the nations. Out of their way so that they may dwell in the land that you promised to their fathers. You rose up, uh, a King out of your own heart, uh, King David, to lead and shepherd his people. But Lord, in spite of all that you did for them, they still rebelled against you. And Lord, lest we look at Israel with scorn, may we look at our own hearts. How often, Lord, do we forsake your mercy and your goodness toward us? How often do we uh, neglect uh, to pray to you, to read your word, to uh, fellowship with other uh, believers, uh, to pursue holiness and, and righteousness? Well, we can be just like Israel at times. So Lord, we pray that you look upon us this morning as we consider you and what you have done for us First and foremost, through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, who paid our ransom, who ransomed us from sin, from uh, the death that comes with sin, so that those who believe in him may have eternal life. Lord, I, I pray this morning also for us. That we turn away from the things of this world and our affections toward them, and turn uh, to you. We look for distractions in every other place, Lord. We we look to worship other things instead of looking to worship you. That is what our sinful hearts incline us to do. Lord, we ask you this morning to look upon our hearts. Only you know our hearts, Lord. We ask you to change and transform our hearts and conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we can truly say that there is not fail one word of all your good promises that you have made. You've promised to keep us. You've promised to bring us home. You've promised to finish the good work of salvation that you began in us. We pray, Lord, that you continue that work in transforming us and conforming us to Christ and to love him more and to also hate sin more. Lord, may you be with us as you always have been. May you not leave us nor forsake us. May you incline our hearts to yourself, to walk in your ways, to keep your commandments and your statutes, Lord, may you incline our hearts to to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, bend our will towards yours. So that, Lord, when people see us, they will know that you are the Lord God and that there is no other. May our hearts be loyal to the Lord our God and to walk in your statutes and walk in your commands. That is my prayer for our church this morning What I've been meditating on the last few days. That we be loyal to you, Lord, that we be inclined to worship you and to serve you, to walk in your ways, to pursue a holy and righteous life in the midst of a perverse and wicked world. Father, we also turn our attention to um, our sister churches. Redeemers back worshiping today. We thank you for um, bringing them back to worship together after a rash of uh, COVID cases within their fellowship. Pray that you uh, be with Phil today as he brings the message gospel. Uh, Bob St. John, who will be back at ABC, Lord, that you you be with him see a blessing him to recover from about with COVID also and we pray for abc also that they continue to seek an assistant pastor to come alongside bob to and uh, brother michael uh, share to help shepherd that church pray for carlton at grace fellowship and the elders there that you continue to Do your work in them to lead and shepherd Grace Fellowship in a way that is pleasing to you. Brother Anthony Cook at Christian Fellowship, that you continue to persevere him in ministry also there at Christian Fellowship. And here, Lord, we thank you for persevering us for almost 11 years. Help me to continue to be faithful to your word, faithful to your truth, and committed to faithful service and being faithful in the preaching of your word. Father, we pray as we come down to the ministry of the word that you fill me with your spirit to help me as I preach this great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints uh, eternal security. We thank you, Lord, that not only do you save us, but you keep us until the end. We thank you for such a great doctrine. Father, I pray that you send the spirit to illuminate these truths to us this morning as we hear them, crystallize them in our thoughts and affirm them in our spirit that we may be comforted by the truth that you persevere your saints until the end. In Christ's name I pray, amen. May let us uh, turn, we're gonna look at two passages to begin with this morning both of them in the gospel, according to John. The first one is gonna be John 6, in John 6, and the other one is in John 10. And as we preach today, we'll be citing some quotes from this book, The Cross and Salvation by Bruce Damaris, which I have been, um, is one of my secondary Sources as I've been preaching through the doctrine of salvation, so we're going to look at John 6. It says verse 37 through 40. We'll get a little bit more context. Uh, look at some verses before verse 37. Let's turn the sound down a little bit. In this chapter, Jesus was um, teaching his disciples uh, that he's the bread of life that came down uh, from heaven. Uh, this is after he fed the 5,000. It was on the heels of that. And in verse 22, he talked about being the bread of life and that Jesus was the manna that came from heaven um, in the wilderness uh, with Israel when they were in the wilderness those 40 years. Uh, the manna that came from heaven was Christ. Uh, himself. And he said in verse 27 of John 6: Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. So he was speaking of himself because that manna, they only had enough for each day. That's all they had. They had to gather enough for each day, so it wasn't something that was uh, permanent. So he goes on to say here in verse 30 he says therefore they said to him what sign shall we perform then that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat and Jesus said to most surely I say to you Moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's speaking of himself for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. And gives life to the world. So Christ is speaking of himself as that bread. He was in that bread. And he is the bread who came down from heaven. In his incarnation. And they said to him. Lord give us this bread always. Jesus said to them. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Shall never hunger. And he who believes in me. Shall never thirst. He's talking about those who confess faith in Christ. But I said to you. That you have seen me yet do not believe. He says all that the father gives me. He's speaking of those who come to him in faith. This is about the sovereign will of God in electing those who come to him for salvation. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the doctrine of election. He says all who comes. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast. Out. Keep that in mind. For I have come. Down from heaven. Not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God. Who sent me. That of all. He has given me. I should lose. Nothing. Nothing in the Greek means nothing but shall raise it up at the last day and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have what everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day so he said that twice the last day meaning the day that he comes back so this is perseverance everyone whom God saves whom he elects Salvation and gives to Christ as his gift, he sees them through, he perseveres them. That's what we have in mind. All that the Father gives me, I will lose nothing, even I lose any of them. Now, if you turn to John 10, this is the chapter where Christ is speaking of himself as the good shepherd, and that harkens back to a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. David was speaking of Christ that was a foreshadowing a a picture and type Christ is the good shepherd if you look at the first part of the uh, chapter as context he says that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way the same as the thief and the robber for he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Christ's sheep know his voice. That's, in other words, what he was saying. Okay, look at verse 7. Jesus said to them again, Well, surely I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves. In robbers. he was speaking of the false prophets. He was speaking of the, the Pharisees. They were false followers of God, they were uh, hirelings, in other words. He says in verse 9, He is the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, just giving you all the context here. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd as opposed to the hirelings, as opposed to the false teachers he says I am the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep uh, this is a reference of Christ's substitutionary death for sinners on the cross as opposed to the hirelings who won't give their life for anyone okay so he speaks of that then he says in verse 14 again I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own as the father knows me even so i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep i have which are not of this fold he was speaking of the gentiles okay that the gentiles are going to be brought into the fold okay them also i must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd Okay, so that's the context. So now if you go down to verse 27. Well, first he had the opposition that came to him. This was at the Feast of Dedication. He had those who opposed him who came to him. And in verse 24 said the Jews surround him saying, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe. Why do they not believe? Because they are not his sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. That's perseverance. And they shall never perish. That's perseverance. All right. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, that's harkening back to John chapter 6. Is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Why? Because I and my Father are one. That is the perseverance and preservation of the saints, the doctrine of eternal security. There are more verses, but those are the two that I wanted to start with this morning when we looked at uh, this message this morning. That whomever God saves, he keeps. When I was at Litchfield High School as a teacher, it, Litchfield was in Gaston. Uh, it's, it's a middle school now because they consolidated the high schools in Gaston into Gaston City High School. But when I was at Litchfield High School, this was back in nineteen ninety-nine, I think, the ninety-nine two thousand school year. I was teaching there, and there's another young man there. he was a he was a pastor at a uh, local Baptist church there in um, in East Gaston. And he, you know, he, he he was one of those guys that would get into a lot of, I would say, quote, religious conversations. They weren't necessarily gospel-centered conversations. He would just, you know, ask people questions and stuff. He knew I was a preacher at that time and and whatnot. And, you know, he would like to debate people on different different things. And at that time, I was, you know, still relatively young in the faith and, and you know, as a Christian and a preacher and everything. And he asked me the question. Uh... uh Ronald, uh, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> because at that point, I didn't know. I, I heard people say that or use that phrase, once saved, always saved, but I never heard that fleshed out. And his answer was he didn't believe in it. He didn't believe that once wants a person to say that they're always saved. He believed that people could lose their salvation, you know, and he was very, uh, dogmatic about it. I was just say that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, who keeps us, you know, and if I, if I were to see him now, I would be able to, you know, be given more defense of the doctrine of eternal uh, security. But the question we have to ask ourselves. If someone asks you that question is, who keeps us? Who keeps us? The answer is, we do not keep ourselves saved. God does. God keeps us saved. Rather, we persevere in our salvation. But we don't keep ourselves saved. We just read in John 10 where uh, Jesus said that uh, no one can snatch them, the elect, the sheep, out of his hands. And I heard a preacher sarcastically say one time to that who didn't believe in eternal security, that doesn't mean you can't jump out. You know, but no, no one can uh, jump out of God's hand. Okay? But we do not keep ourselves saved. The fact is, is that the truly regenerated, the truly justified and the truly sanctified will persevere until the end. And I have to say truly regenerated because we're going to see in his message that there are those who are uh, false converts who are not truly regenerated, but those whom God truly regenerates truly justified and who are truly sanctified called out set aside set apart God will preserve them until the end the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, answers the question what is the perseverance of the Saints and the Westminster Confession of Faith says this they whom God has both accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, true believers may backslide for a season, and we're going to look at that as one of our principles, but they will never be eternally lost. Okay, true believers may backslide for a season, and a season is not a lifetime, by the way. Okay, they may backslide for a season, but they will not be eternally lost, or they will not eternally backslide. Okay? Okay. So let's look at our principles here. First principle is. God's initiative in preservation. You know, some uh, older theologians uh, called it the preservation and perseverance of the saints. The Psalms reflect confidence in the faithful God who preserves trusting believers uh, to the end. An example is Psalm 37 verses 23. Three through twenty four. And this is this is this is so encouraging. It says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You all probably heard that verse before. Think about that. God orders the steps. He sets them in place. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Order. Another word for order is established. And it says he delights in his way. God delights in the steps of a good man. And look at verse 24. Though he fall, though the good man fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Utterly means totally and completely. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Christian, let that encourage you. Though you fall, though you stumble, you will not utterly be cast down. For the Lord upholds you with his hand. And then verse 28 of that same chapter for the Lord loves justice he does not forsake his saints they are preserved forever but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off god preserves his saints forever he will not forsake them this is god's initiative in persevering in preserving His own. This is God in Psalm 73. Verse 23. Nevertheless I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward receive me to glory. That's God preserving. That's a Psalm of Asaph. God would guide him with his counsel and afterward receive him to glory. Even the old saints knew about, excuse me, God preserving his people. In Jeremiah 32 and 40, the Lord spoke powerful words that would never be broken. Jeremiah 32 and 40 says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Everlasting covenant, everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their heart so that they will not depart from me. This is God's initiative in preserving his people. In the New Testament, Jesus taught that believers in the Son immediately have eternal life. And eternal life is in two ways. It is qualitative in quality, and it is in quantity or quantitative life without end. Okay. We have eternal life in two ways. He who believes in the Lord has eternal life. And there were John 3 and 16 says. Jesus said in John 3 and 15, the verse before that, whoever believes in him, Shall not perish, but have eternal life, or everlasting life. Eternal means what? Eternal. Okay, that's what it means. A new life in Christ cannot be forfeited or terminated. If so, it wouldn't be eternal. How can it be be eternal if you can forfeit it? You can lose it. You can give it up. That doesn't make it eternal. The very concept of eternal life means eternal. It cannot end. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be paused. Even the believer who backslides for a season still has eternal life. They still have eternal life. Also, Paul affirmed the eternal security of believers. In Ephesians 1 and Philippians 1 and 6, he says, and this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Of Jesus Christ, God who began that work of salvation in us, in believers. God doesn't just save you and just leave you to your own devices. No, God saves you and he sees you through what he started. That work of salvation that he started, he will finish it. He will see you through until the end. He says in Second Timothy four and eighteen, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. And this was Paul, this is his second letter. This is uh, when Paul was about to be put to death. About to be beheaded. This is his last letter to Timothy. He wasn't worried about that. He said. The Lord would deliver me from every evil work. And preserve me. For his heavenly kingdom. That's a great confession to make. When you know that your life is coming to an end. I had this um, it was maybe five six years ago a uh, friend probably have a better memory of it than me as far as when when, when Bob was in the hospital my a string fellow, and uh, I went to see him and uh, he, he said he said Ron I, I feel like I'm sick unto death <laughs> and I said you know Look, he's going to be fine, but he asked me to read him some scripture. He wanted to be comforted by the word. And this is the passage that I took him to right here in Second uh, Timothy. The Lord will deliver you from every evil work and preserve you for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We should know, saints, that no matter what befalls us, God is going to preserve us no matter what state we're in. He's going to perform His work of pers- uh, persevering us. So we should be comforted by that no matter what we face in this life. That should comfort us. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 and 22. And you will be hated. By all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end. Will be saved. Christianity is a race. To the end. To the finish. That is my second principle. The believers response in perseverance. So the first one we saw God's initiative. The second one is the believers response. One of them. He who induced it in will be saved. How are we under persecution? What do most people do? They defect. Oh, I'm not. I'm not that kind of Christian. (laughs) No. That's what they do. They. Defect. They walk away. J.C. Ryle said this in his book, Old Paths. He says, I am one of those old-fashioned ministers who believes the whole Bible and everything that it contains. I believe that there is a real devil. I believe that there is a real hell. I believe that it is not charity or love. To keep back from men that they may be lost. Jesus told his disciples, You will be persecuted for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He said that because there were some who did not see it through. For their part, the disciples must continue in faith. They must hold fast to Christ's teachings and obey his commands. And this is the same for us. That is what God is saying to us. From the human side, believers must apply the spiritual resources to maintain our relationship with Christ. This is one of those things where you have God's sovereignty in saving us and keeping us, but you have human responsibility. We're called to persevere in our faith. We're called to endure to the end. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10 and 36, says, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He says in verse 39 of Hebrews 10, but we are not of those who draw back, Because this is what God said. Let me read the intervening verses. Verses 37 and 38. Let me read the context again. Beginning at verse 36. This is Hebrews 10. The writer says for you. Well let me go back to verse 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence. Which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God. You may receive the promise. Then begins to quote, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not wait. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. A perdition means destruction. But of those who believe to the saving of. So that is the writer of Hebrews charging those believers and charging us to not draw back from God. To not turn away as others have. To not turn away. But rather to persevere, to see it through, to endure to the end. We must continue in the faith. Again, we must hold fast to Christ's teachings and obey his commands. We must be constant in prayer. We must pursue holiness of life. We must be alert and vigilant. As Peter said in 1 Peter 5, be sober and vigilant. We must maintain steadfastness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We must practice endurance. We must be patient in affliction when, when trials do come. We, we're, we're patient We're you know, God is doing his work in us, growing us, conforming us to Christ's likeness, maturing us in our faith. We must be patient in affliction, not when hard times come, we denounce Christ. We denounce our belief in him. No, we have patience in afflictions, patient when life gets hard, patient in in sickness, in persecution. We must do battle against sin, as we talked about last week, putting off sinfulness and putting on Christ, putting on the new man, putting off the old man and his deeds, those old sinful proclivities that we used to have before we were in Christ. We must be active in putting to death sin, active in resisting the temptation to sin, not putting ourselves in situations where we easily sin. We must do battle with sin. That is part of persevering. Because if you don't do battle against sin, guess what? Sin is going to win. And sin is going to pull you away from the Lord. Friends, I haven't saved that long. I've been saved for 30 years. I guess it's more than half my life. I can't tell you. It's only by God's grace that he keeps me. I can't tell you the countless people that I know personally who didn't persevere. They walked away. I'm talking about, you know, they walked away and became an atheist or an agnostic. No, they, they apostatized. They departed from the faith. They are no longer. We have some uh, from our church that have done the same thing. They've apostatized. And it's, it's sad. It's disheartening because you know their end. But we can easily, fall away if we don't do battle against sin if we don't resist the devil if we don't be diligent to press on toward the heavenly goal if we're not constant in prayer if we don't pursue holiness of life guess what the same thing can happen to us and we'll be a byword. many of us probably know people like that if you've been a Christian long enough and been in church long enough you can see people who have just And you know Charles Stanley used this illustration one time about drifting away. You know when I was in the Navy we had man overboard drills. And they would throw a dummy into the water. And the the ship was always uh, anchored you know somewhere out in the ocean. And as the ship was anchored you could see the dummy just slowly just drifting away from the ship. It was a slow drift and before you know it, you can even see it. That's what happens when people drift from Christ drift from the church drift from prayer drift from pursuing holiness drift from being alert and vigilant In their faith, drift from patience in affliction. It doesn't happen sudden, it's a drift. And then the next thing you know, they're so far gone. The writer in Hebrews even warns, I think it's Hebrews, the second or third chapter, take heed. To what you hear. Lest you drift away. Lest you drift away. That's the human side of. Perseverance. Third principle. The redeemed. May backslide for. A. Season. And I have three examples I'm going to read about right quick. Uh. Solomon, David and Peter and Bruce Damaris gives good examples. I've read about these three men. Of course, uh, most of it takes place in um, Solomon, his first kings. Uh, David, most of his life is chronicled in the book of second uh, Samuel. And this is what he says about these three men, about their backsliding. He says here, um, he mentions uh, Jeremiah spoke about Israel's backsliding nine times. The Lord said of Judah, their rebellion is great, and their backsliding is many. That's Jeremiah 5 and 6. And Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy. That's Isaiah 63 and 10. Isaiah 1 and 4 says they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and have turned their backs on him. That's what backsliding looks like. But Bruce Damaris here says, But in spite of their faithlessness, Yahweh would not abandon his people. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? God says in Hosea 11 and 8. Because God did restore Israel. He speaks here uh, about Solomon. Solomon was an example of a backsliding believer. And if you get a chance, read through 1 Kings. And you will see the promise and the precipitous fall. Precipitous meaning just like falling off a cliff. uh, Fall of Solomon. Solomon, of course, was David's son. And um, God would not allow David to build uh, the temple because he was a man of war. Uh, he gave that responsibility to, to Solomon and Solomon rose to be king. He was the wisest man in all of Israel and uh, all the land really. And God had warned Solomon about the foreign women and to not make alliances with foreign countries. But yet Solomon uh, did that. The Lord was met with him and made him exceedingly great as 2nd Chronicles 1 and 1 says Solomon showed his love to the Lord by walking according uh, to the statutes of his father David when God asked Solomon uh, what did he want? Solomon chose wisdom over riches and we've all, all heard that story Solomon built the great temple in which God would dwell his prayer of dedication in 1st uh, Kings uh, 8th chapter is one of the greatest prayers in all Scripture. I remember preaching through that prayer when I was preaching on great prayers in the Bible I'm going to revisit that again here soon but it was a great prayer that he prayed he wrote major portions of the Bible including Psalm 72 Psalm 127 uh, most of the Proverbs and also the Song of Song Song of Solomon but yet Solomon took 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that was in violations of God's prohibition for him marrying foreign women because God told him when you marry these women that they were going to take your heart away from him. He built high places and worshiped their gods, the gods of Ashtoreth, uh, Malek, and Kamash. And scripture records that as Solomon grew old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon had backslid. He backslid. How do we know it was for a season? Jesus referred to Solomon in Luke the 11th chapter the Lord compared himself with Solomon by saying one greater than Solomon is here. He was comparing himself with Solomon. Solomon backslid for he was very faithful to the Lord and he backslid and married these foreign women. But yet scripture still speaks favorably of Solomon Christ himself did in Luke 11 and 31 consider the life of David as I say you see most of David's life in uh, 1 Samuel beginning around the 16th chapter the prophet Samuel had anointed David as the future king of Israel after Saul had disobeyed uh, God when he went out to battle against the Amalekites. David volunteered to fight who? Goliath. Y'all remember David and Goliath? David was the one who volunteered to go before them because all the other uh, warriors were, were scared. God gave the Davidic covenant to David. God told David that he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and that he would be his father and he would be his son. God told David that there will never fail to be a man sitting on your throne. And he was speaking of Christ. David was the Christ type king in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus is referred to one of his titles is the son of David. Because he sat on David's throne. This is how great David was. But David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he calls her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to get drunk. And he put Uriah on the front line where he was killed in battle. And a year later, the prophet Nathan confronted David with his sin. you'll see that in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter. And David immediately repented. He received God's forgiveness. That's 2 Samuel 12 verses 12 and 13. And David wrote Psalm 51 as a result. And also Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose sins have been forgiven. He was speaking of his great sin. I acknowledge my sins and my transgressions. Before you Psalm 51 against thee against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David was a man of God who stumbled, but he was restored to fellowship by God's grace. Peter is another example of a believer who lapsed spiritually for a season. This Peter was the one who confessed Christ as the Son of the Living God when Christ asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? in Matthew 16. And Jesus had blessed Peter for his confession and assigned him a foundational role in the building of the church when he says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the Peter we're talking about. Petros, meaning rock. That's what the name Peter means. But Peter's faith was not as strong as his name was. He was extremely overconfident. You know, when Jesus was being arrested in Matthew 26, there's an account of Peter taking the sword out and chopping off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus told him not to do that. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He had to rebuke Peter because of his overconfidence. He was impulsive. And he denied the Lord three times. Jesus told him that he was going to do that. The cock will not crow. Until you deny me three times. And when Peter denied Christ that third time. That rooster crowed and Peter wept bitterly as scripture says he repented. That was the low point of his life. But Jesus told Peter that he prayed for him that his faith not fail. And after Christ rose from the dead this is found you know in John the 21st chapter the Lord fully restored Peter to fellowship and three times commissioned him to care for his people. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He restored the backslidden Peter. God will chasten and backslidden believers, but he will not utterly do away with them. So believers can backslide for a season. And as I said earlier, a season doesn't mean a lifetime. <laughs> okay. They backslide for a season, but they are restored. And that restoration is done by God. Those who backslide and are never restored are apostatized. They depart. They fall away and the last principle is some apostatize because they were never converted in the first place apostasy is the serious condition of becoming separated from the living God after a previous turning toward him by falling away from their faith or by abandoning their faith. And apostasy, friends, is a serious condition. Think about the person who, you know, they were saved or they had a conversion or somewhat of a conversion experience. You know, they're doing all the Christian things, so to speak. They're coming to church. They're participating in church. But yet. They turn away. And they continue to turn away. And apostasy is the point of no return. It's dangerous to apostatize. It's dangerous to walk away. It's dangerous to follow away. some people. Say, oh, I'll, I'll come back later. You know, I get my life together, get some things together, you know, settle some things in my mind or whatever the case may be. You know, I got time. I've seen many people young and older apostatize and it's it's heartbreaking the reason why I say it is because I care about their souls. But it's a final departure. And it's a dangerous place to be. Judas Iscariot was the perfect biblical example of an apostate. John MacArthur uh, said in his book. About the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel according to Jesus. He said this about Judas Iscariot. He says, Judas is a prime example of a professing believer who fell into absolute apostasy. For three years, he followed the Lord with the other disciples. He appeared to be one of them. Yet, while the others were growing into apostles, Judas was quietly becoming a vile, calculating tool of Satan. Whatever his character seemed to be at the beginning, his faith was not real. He was unregenerate, and his heart gradually hardened so that he became the treacherous man who sold the Savior for a fistful of coins. In the end, he was so prepared to do Satan's bidding that the devil himself, Possessed Judas. And he referred to John 13 and 27, where Jesus says, One of you is a devil. And they were looking around like, (laughs) Who? Not me. He was speaking of Judas. Judas is the prototype apostate. He walked with Jesus. He was with them just like the others. He was with Christ, rather, just as the The other 11. He saw. Think about this people. Judas saw the miracles. He saw all the miracles. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He saw the lame walking. He, He saw the great sermons that Christ preached. He was there. He was the treasurer. Of the 12. Or yet, what did he do? What does this mean? Y'all let this drive in. A person can look and appear to be a Christian on the outside. But this is where it's at. God told Israel in the book of Isaiah. That you worship me with your lips and your mouths but your hearts are far away from me. People apostatize in their heart first. Their affections for Christ diminish. John plainly taught that those who withdraw from believing were never saved in the first place. He said that in 1 John 2 and 19. They were not from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. As R.C. Sproul said, if you have, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. They were not from us, 1 John 2 and 19, because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they did not continue with us to prove that they were never of us. Those who have apostatized, they never were. They hung on as long as they could. Some people can hang on for 20, 30 years and still be a false convert. And in the end, guess what they do? They fall away. And you can't preach them into heaven at their funeral. They apostatized. They departed. They turned their backs on Christ. They turned their backs on his church. They turned their backs on the fellowship of the saints. They turned their backs on his word and turned their backs on prayer. All the ordinary means of grace that God gives us. They turn away from it all. And then you see them again sometimes if you have the chance. They You can just see the look of lostness in their eyes. I've I've seen it. They turned away. It's a serious condition. Paul spoke of uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. In uh, 1 Timothy 1 as men who uh, were with him. They rejected conscience. They 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 suffered a shipwreck in their faith. That's how Paul um, said it in 1 Timothy 1. They shipwrecked their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says whom he turned over to Satan so that they might not blaspheme. They rejected the essentials of the Christian faith. So Paul had to get rid of them. He had to turn them over to Satan. He later wrote in 2 Timothy. um, Think around verse middle part 17, 18 about Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says they have swerved from the truth. Swerve from means to reject. They rejected the truth. By claiming that the resurrection of the dead had already taken place. And Paul says that they are upsetting the faith of some. They were apostates trying to cause other people to apostatize. Hymenaeus was an unconverted false teacher. His teaching was called godless and ungodly by Paul. Paul. In 2 Timothy 2 and 16. Paul added that Alexander did him great harm in 2 Timothy 4 and 14. And he did that by testifying against him when he was on trial in Rome. He said they strongly oppose our message. Paul removed them from the church. They made ingenuous professions of faith. That means it wasn't it wasn't real, and in due course, they publicly fell away. It took time, but they fell away. They apostatized because they were never converted in the first place. So, what are some applications and implications that we can look to for encouragement? Be comforted. Christian. God will never abandon us. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13 and 5 says that. God will never abandon us. The final outcome of the doctrine of perseverance. Is spiritual comfort and consolation. We can know that God will do what he will see us through till the end. The believer's hope does not rest in the feeble Hold of God. Because again. Jesus said no one can snatch him out of his hand. That's what I hope rests in. We know that God will. Keep us. Psalm 138 and 8. The psalmist says the Lord will perfect. That which concerns me your mercy O Lord and do us forever do not forsake the works of your hands John 13 and one this is at the upper room discourse when Jesus was about to wash his disciples feet John wrote now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Christian God will not abandon you. He will not abandon us. Next implication is to be diligent. We utilize God's appointed means of grace. This is where we step in. Bruce DeMaria says this. He says, Saints must respond to the divine initiative with faithfulness and diligence. The doctrine under consideration is not one-sided. It is two-sided. God preserves his redeemed children, but they must diligently persevere for their part believers must desire to be preserved and they must actively respond to God's uh, prevenient grace faithfulness and power we must contend for our faith in other words those who wish to gain the crown must contend for it Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27. He says, Therefore I run not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was running for a crown, and that's what we must do as believers we run for the crown, we persevere. the truly regenerate in whose hearts God's spirit is at work, we will abhor sin, we will seek holiness, and we will pursue God's will. That's what the believer will do. We'll shun evil. Shun the very appearance of evil. Not want to be around evil. Not willingly participate in evil. And we pursue a life of holiness. It's not a word that we see a lot in Christendom today, but it is an important word. We pursue a holy life, an upright life, a life of integrity. Forget what the world says. Live a life of integrity before God, a life of holiness and righteousness. That is what matters the most. Lastly, Be steadfast in trials and tribulations. First of all, as a Christian, we will suffer trials. Jesus said that in in John 16 and 33. In this world, you you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We will have trials in this life. Some of us are probably going through trials right now. They will either come from the devil, lesser evil powers, and the world. Bruce Mayer says here, the point is that the Christian steadfast endurance of the inevitable trials and sufferings demonstrate the genuineness of one's profession. Those who stand fast in face of opposition openly display the reality of their faith and their standing in Christ. Those of us who stand fast when we have trials, when we have tribulations, when life gets hard and difficult, guess what? That proves the reality of our faith. That proves that we're genuine believers. The scriptures encourage Christians to be Steadfast and true to Christ in the midst of trial and persecution. First Peter 5 and 9, Peter says, resist him. He's speaking of Satan. Verse 8 says, be sober and vigilant. Be alert. Be discerning. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him steadfast in the faith. We're to resist Satan, we're to flee temptation, we're to flee sin. We resist him steadfast in the faith. That's what God calls us to do. That's part of persevering faith. We we stand fast in the midst of hard times. Augustine, who lived in the fourth century, is one of the early church fathers, said this as I close. This is a sound instruction from him. He says, "Your first task is to be dissatisfied with yourself, to fight sin, and to transform yourself into something better. Your second task is to put up with the trials and temptations of this world that will be brought, On By the change in your life and to persevere to the very end in the midst of these things. He wrote that over 1,500 years ago. And it still rings true. Persevere to the very end in the midst of trials. We're going to face them. We're facing them right now. If you haven't, you will. But persevere therein. Let us pray. Father, thank you for encouragement from your word. Thank you, Lord, that you persevere your own. Thank you, Lord, that as you elect us, you adopt us. You justify us, you sanctify us, and you persevere us. Lord, help us to do our part, to work out what you have worked in us, to pursue holiness, to forsake sin, to read scripture, to pray constantly, To maintain steadfastness. To practice endurance. To do battle against sin again. To resist the devil. And to diligently press on toward the heavenly goal. Father thank you that you persevere us. And may we respond to that perseverance. By doing those things. To apply the spiritual resources that you have given us